This week, we're speaking with Dr. Todd Dewitt. Todd is someone you may have come across before. He's easily one of the most prolific course creators and experts on LinkedIn learning. And that's how I came across Todd a number of years ago when Todd was on lynda.com, which then uh, became LinkedIn Learning and was acquired by Microsoft. But Todd's appearance is unconventional. He'll tell you this himself when he talks about authenticity today on the interview. Todd is or has a shaven head, he's got tattoos, sports and earring, and comes across like a kind of a, a rock star, more than, let's say, your average corporate boardroom kind of expert. But yet that's what Todd has become. Todd talks about authenticity and why his brand of, of leadership really resonates with his clients. He's been in Time Magazine, uh, Bloomberg, Forbes, CNN. He's a five times, I think four or five times TEDx speaker, but he's got amazing energy and he's managed to develop that brand. I wanted to find out how he went from working with or for Anderson Consulting uh, to becoming this expert in his area. We talk about how he stumbled upon his area of expertise, his courses, his training, his books, and how he's developed that brand. And I think this is something really relevant for many of us out there in the training business community. How you, do you go about uh, honing or refining exactly what your message is, the kinds of clients you want to work for, brands like Microsoft, Macy's, LinkedIn, uh, General Electric. These are just some of the clients that Todd has landed over the years. So where did he begin? How did he do it? And three key tips, which Todd's going to share with us today. All about authenticity, establishing two-way authenticity, using your mistakes, and how to model it, don't ask for it. This is the Training Business Podcast. And welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, welcome to the show. As I alluded to before the music, this is the show for people just like you and I. If you're someone who is either in the middle of developing their programs, their expertise, or converting your expertise into programs and products and keynotes, this is the show for you. Because this is all about not just the theory of learning, uh, but more importantly, the business of learning. How do you as a practitioner, as an expert in a particular subject, get your brand out there? How do you start thinking about the kinds of people that need what you do and why it's the kind of program that you should sell them. And this is about making money, let's be honest. I make my living from working with software companies as a coach. Um, I've written a book on the subject, and I'm clearer now than I was a number of years ago on my sweet spot, the kinds of clients which are right for me. And for that reason, every single Thursday, without fail, there is an episode of this show on your podcast platform of choice, whether it's Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, or something else, many podcast platforms out there. On that basis, can I please ask you to pause this right now and to click on subscribe because it costs absolutely nothing, takes a couple of seconds and really means the world to my team, to Joe, to Sam, to James, and to me, to know that you find value in this and that you want to come back for more. Of course, there are episodes on those podcast platforms as well as on trainingbusiness.com. So let's go and talk right now to Todd Jewett. Todd, hi, welcome to the show. Hey, good to see you. Thanks for having me. I was just remarking before we clicked record that um, it's strange to be talking to you because I've seen your face so many times on LinkedIn Learning. And I think you were there when Lynda uh, was the brand, right? Before LinkedIn Learning? Correct. First few years yeah. was 
Linda.com back in the day. It's almost 10 years now for me. And uh, it was Linda. It was Linda. Yeah. Um, so let's begin with, with the beginning, which is how did you go from being perhaps just like the rest of us to being someone who now has been a five times TED speaker? You've got multiple books. Uh, you have got, you've got courses and training and coaching programs. And of course, a litany of, of clients working with you. Where did that all begin? Well, it all started, uh, it's funny because we're going to get around eventually to talking about authenticity. And it all started with getting more honest and real with myself about being happy and being productive and how do I find my way towards those goals in life when I was a young professional. So I did the Anderson and Ernst and Young thing for a very brief period of time. And during that time, I, I realized that uh, people are very interesting and sometimes very difficult and that relationships, when they're optimized, are terribly useful and fulfilling. And yet that wasn't common, like I thought it should be. And I was intrigued by that. Plus, I knew I didn't fit. I'm kind of a loud, cantankerous, change-minded, progressive person. And corporate America isn't necessarily a place where I fit well. And I could, I got to the point where I could say that. <laughs> and then I said, where do I fit? And I was thinking deeply, and I wanted to dive deep on a lot of questions I had about these people issues in business. And it just became clear quickly that a PhD made a lot of sense. So okay. I let go of a big, uh, prestigious job and went to Texas A&M to get a PhD in organizational behavior. What was the thinking behind organizational behavior as a, a focus? Well, I like business a lot. I thought about doing the psychology route, um, and there's a lot of cachet in society for that word, that label. Um, but ultimately, I'm interested in business. I'd been through business school for two degrees already, and I wanted to speak to business people about issues in business and life. Mm -hmm. And so it made sense to me to go for the business school's version of applied psychology, which is organizational behavior. Okay. So let's think with, with a business hat on for a second. How did you then discover a need for what you um, believe to be your area of expertise? How did you look at the marketplace and say, these kinds of organizations have these kinds of problems that I can help them with? Well, I really didn't. Uh, I wish I could say something more profound in response to that <laughs> okay. question. I, I really knew that I didn't fit over there, that relationships were central and sometimes lacking in, in quality. And that was it. That's where I decided to take a jump in the direction of being an expert in addressing uh, the intersection of those two issues. Really, it was that simple for me. I didn't know that when I got done, there would be people wanting to speak about it to me. It was during the PhD teaching students and starting to speak and consult that it became, holy crap, wow, people mm. uh, love these topics, need these topics. And I happened to be, and I wasn't completely clear on this until, again, during the PhD when I started formally teaching, I wasn't clear that, in fact, I'm a great communicator. I'm good at expressing ideas and helping people see a point that needs to be seen. And I didn't know I had that skill at the level that I have it. So inadvertently, I discovered it along the route to a PhD. What were the topics then that people came to you for help with? Well, my team's crazy. They don't understand. I tell them what to do and they don't do it. Very, very long list of fairly basic um stressful people like that. <laughs> you know, I've talked to my boss. I try to do what he says. He's still mad at me. I don't know why he's mad at me anymore. Uh, so strained team relationships, boss relationships. Occasionally, it would be uh, vendors and customer service things, but those are really okay. on the periphery for me. I, I, I just core relationships at work. Hey, we have a jerk. What are your thoughts on how you bottle up a jerk and get them to realize they're not behaving appropriately? Yeah. All of those kinds of issues, you know? All that perennial stuff then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Where did you find your first customer and land that big first name that uh, began that process of attracting even bigger names? 
It's a good question. Um, this is not unrelated to where we hope this conversation goes when we talk about authenticity and issues like mm -hmm. that, because probably the first big one that made me go, wow, maybe I'm going somewhere, was State Farm, the big insurance firm. And the reason it's interesting is not because they were the first one, and it was my first big gig, senior leaders, lights, in a stage, and music, and all that. Uh, it was because I did poorly. It, the, the, the fact that I performed so poorly that day compelled me to create a story, because that's kind of what I do in some ways, is create stories, at least for keynote speeches. It's always story-based for me. Mm -hmm. And one of my most enduring and popular and relatable stories is about how I really blew it on stage with my first big wow client, first big fee, first big audience, first lots of firsts that day, and I completely botched it. <laughs> and and thank, thankfully learned how to um, identify specifically what I did wrong, get over myself and realize it's not about them. It's really about me, which is a hard, simple, but hard thing to do. And I needed someone, some incident to push me to think that thought. And it was State Farm that did it for me. And it became an amazing learning uh, adventure eventually. And is your business today, is that a team of one or have you got um, other associates in your brand? Uh, it's a team of two, me and my wife. She works okay. uh, with me full time. And uh, my time is spent making courses, giving speeches, writing books for the most part. Occasionally okay. things will happen with training and coaching and so on. Generally, it's speaking, writing, and courses that these days. Okay. I want to ask you a couple more questions in that vein, then we'll go on to your topics if that's all right. Because um, I'm always curious how people go from where, let's say, listeners are to how they get on stage and get invited to keynotes. It almost becomes now a machine which uh, attracts even more leads. Um, how about the success of writing books and doing courses? Which of those things really began to make a difference in your, let's say, income streams? Uh, so far, it's definitely courses. Uh, okay. it, it's the most unexpected part of my career by far. They, I have many good friends over at LinkedIn, and they've done really impressive things in the last many years growing their platform. And thankfully, I'm still a big part of it. And it, it's mm. changed it's changed everything for me. I mean, every day I get notes from someone around the world about something uh, to say thanks or to ask a question about something in a course. Um, we're talking over 30 courses in eight languages over wow. almost uh, countries. It's crazy. <laughs> so I'm always getting uh, requests. Now, before that grew into something, I was still, I was a professional speaker. I had grown in the Midwest before I moved to Houston, Texas, where I was a professor at a great school called Wright State University. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it was wonderful. And I was doing small gigs, mostly in the region. And, um, and thanks to this type of growth over time, now it's bigger firms, bigger audiences. And yeah, they changed everything for me is the short answer. And you've written a couple of books. What did that do for your brand and your business? Well, one of them in particular did something. Uh, like most authors, I, I'm I'm open and honest about this. You know, most books don't change our lives. We just yeah. had this thing we had to create, and so we did. Uh, but one has had great traction. I've got one coming out next year uh, that I think is going to be the game changer for me. It's called Dancing with Monsters. Anyhow, the book so far that got any traction and attention is called Show Your Ink, and it's just 20 short stories, much like I would use in a keynote address. And it's about authenticity and related leadership ideas and mm. the simple nature of a phrase like show your ink instead of saying, hey, authenticity matters turned out to be the one and only marketing stroke of genius I've had so far because people get that. They remember it. I walk into an event and they, they say, hey, show your ink. <laughs> and it's fun. And then, of course, I'm plagued with this addiction as well. So that was an unexpected uh, marketing pull as well. What does that mean, show your ink? 
Show your just, ink. Just for those of us over here in, in Europe. <laughs> sure. Uh, it's just a simple uh, it's a story, first of all, about a time when I was working for uh, what is now Accenture at the time was Anderson. Yeah. And uh, I had a boss who got some feedback from a client who had seen, at the time, the most visible piece of ink that I had, which is in the crook of my arm. So a short sleeve shirt would reveal it. And that caused some flack. And my boss did not like a client questioning the quality of our team and our talent because I was showing some ink. Uh, and that's where show your ink, the phrase first hit my brain. And it was a time I just got uh, ripped for not being socially intelligent enough to cover up these unprofessional tattoos. And then over time, uh, over time, I realized that authenticity is going to be a cornerstone to what I talk about, which is being a little bit more real, a little bit more appropriately unfiltered, a little more expressive, which most humans want to be at work and don't feel uh, the space to do that, the right to do that. And so that phrase stuck with me until I realized I should start using it on stage and stop acting so professorial with four-syllable words that are completely unnecessary and start speaking real people language. And that phrase really kick-started the effort to learn how to be a professional speaker speaker who, even though I'm I'm an educated guy, I speak plain the same way I'm speaking to you right now. I yeah. do not speak professorial. I gave that up because no one wants to hear it. <laughs> and I suppose you'd recognize this. Your, let's call it your look is unconventional. When people think of um, someone with a PhD and they've got these formal courses and works with corporate clients, they tend to think of people in maybe shirts and blazers and jackets, and maybe that's old school. You're not that kind of guy. You're you're unafraid to to rock things, uh, shake things up, and that comes across. So the tattoo, I guess, we can't see this because this is audio only. But uh, ah. that that tattoo, that ink, you, you're basically saying, be yourself. Authenticity counts. Absolutely, it's a. I'll I'll be bold about it in responding to that and tell you that it mm. is a personally satisfying thing. Uh, less so today than 20 years ago when I started, because the stigma was big then for yeah. tattoos. And it's still real yeah. today, but it's much smaller. But it's personally satisfying when I walk into a room and some person, usually older, and they don't mean anything by it, but their reaction is full of judgment. And then I start doing what I do with words, and they forget quickly that I happen to have ink, and they are engaged and locked in, and I... I feel joy, frankly, bringing people into that space where they care about this dialogue so much that they couldn't even see these things they saw when I walked in. And isn't that strange how that's fallen away in recent years? LinkedIn dialogue has changed. People are now more open about who they are, uh, what they're going through. We see more conversations about mental health, and uh, and that's true for the community. So that segues nicely into today's couple of tips, um, and this is brought to you or rather from you to you to us from your course and and those tips are model it don't ask for it establish two-way authenticity use your mistakes um why don't we start off with authenticity two-way authenticity and i think that resonates with me todd particularly because when we're putting ourselves out there as consultants trainers coaches what you're alluding to with with show your ink is don't just bring your message or training. I guess it's bring who you are uh, as someone who adds value to that company. I think that's that is the message, but I'm going to extend it even further in, in response and say that what I mean by two way, and actually I only discovered this. 10 years ago, which was to say several years into talking about authenticity, people often hear me or anyone talk about it, and they 
uh, feel that I'm only talking about them learning to be a little more complete, a little more uh, unfiltered, real, call it what you'd like. Mm. And that's not true because the goal of doing this isn't just for a person listening to me to feel a little, uh, a little more unburdened by being expressive. The goal is more rapport in positive, productive relationships, which means it's not just about you. If you care about authenticity, it really is about the others with whom you interact regularly as well. So I like to say, you know, if you find comfort in becoming more authentically you, great. But what good is it until you, through kindness, through questions that show that you're curious and through compliments when that's appropriate, help others do the same because it then becomes reciprocal. That's where trust and rapport come from. That's where better teams could possibly emerge. So I love it when an individual finds the wherewithal to be a little more authentic, but that is not where value is truly added. It's got to become a two-way thing between people. Right. So let's just say someone is listening to this and thinking, how do I actually bring that into my personal brand as as a consultant, as a trainer, how do I establish this two-way authenticity? Well, it starts with, uh, it's not easy. It's a great question. It's not easy. It starts with having credibility. You have to earn the right to get away with being a little off of a norm that they might have expected from you. So I walk in and I've got the paper credentials all in place. Everyone knows this guy's not a joke. We should probably try and listen. And then I start speaking with energy and clarity and they go, and I like the message and I can get away with almost anything at that point. But that's 20 years into doing this game of educating and communicating and persuading. Anyone can get there. It is a long journey. you got to be very, very credible. And I like to say this, actually, this might surprise you to young professionals in particular. You really do have to earn the right to be authentic. That sounds horrible to some It does, doesn't it? Yeah. But, it, but I think it's true. When you go into any new social context, there are existing norms and expectations, and your job is to try and understand them to the best of your ability and then meet them in some significant way. To the extent that you're successful in meeting them, in performing at acceptable or above levels, it's amazing how much people will then grant you latitude to be fully you. But when you do that, having not said, look at me, I know how to add a lot of value, they look at you like, yeah, and why are you why are you so colorful and, and loud? What have you done for me lately? That's a, a, a <laughs> difficult human reality to admit, but that is the dynamic we see at work. So okay. Your second tip then, if I'm changing the order of these, forgive me, is um model it, don't ask for it. What does that mean? Oh well, I'm in the advice biz at some level, the education business. And uh, the truth is a lot of people will read a book, a blog, hear a speech, podcast. And then they know something they should care about, something they might should do or say. And so they do it. And there's some value to that, especially if people see you as sincere. But the truth is, and we know a lot about how people, how humans learn. The truth is saying something you need someone to do as an authority at work is got only one level of utility, let's say. Showing them through your own behaviors, we call that modeling it usually, uh, is far more impactful. And, and I briefly would tell you why. And it's because during direct interactions, humans feel weird things like anxieties and they have trouble focusing because they want to know if they look okay in this person's eyes and all kinds of weird things that go through our head. But when I watch you, let's say you're the boss, speaking to someone else, I am not directly involved or as directly involved. And that's called vicarious learning. And we're much better at that because those risks aren't present in our brain. The anxieties really aren't there. And I can see what's happening more 
more clearly and learn. So I love telling leaders, yeah, you got to get your words straight to set expectations, of course, but do it kindly, clearly, succinctly, kindly. And then remember that that's the least effective way you're going to get people to do the right thing at work. Go show them by what you do every day. Take my word for it. You live in a glass house. So make sure you're showing them how to get it done. You mentioned the word kindness uh, at least twice, maybe three times. Why is that such an important thing to you? Slowly over the years, I've continued to morph away from a strict uh, old school leadership guy. Let's talk about how to set goals and uh, more of a dare I say, uh, self-help or preacher type person where I like to talk about kindness and purpose and empathy and these mm. bigger human concepts. And the answer to your question is because I see it lacking in far too many places. I see people trade in the best of what makes us human at work when they walk to the door every day and choose instead to shut down, censor, and be less of themselves as they attempt to avoid offending or yeah. upsetting the apple cart, which is just unfortunate. So one way to look at what I do is, is waking people up and tell them to stop bringing that fake person in the door. Because they do every day. We act at work in large amounts, which is crazy. And one of the biggest things that we see uh, shut down in this process is a variety of positive emotions. And in the heat of the battle, when deadlines are crazy, and maybe even the boss is too, kindness is often lacking. And yet we know it's profoundly impactful when it's present. So just reminding people, that's all I do half the time, is remind people of the obvious. And, and then they're more likely to behaviorally try to uh, engage it and appreciate it. And that makes a team in a literal way better. So it makes me happy. <laughs> and I think it's also pertinent to to us, those of us in, as you call it, the education business slash consulting training business, when we are uh, training, but delivering an experience of education with kindness, people tend to remember us more than just the things that we say or that we put on our screens and displays. That can be true. The old uh, phrase that comes to mind is they might not remember what you say, but they will almost always remember how you made them feel. In my experience, and yes, I'm a very emotional uh, person, very engaged when I communicate. Sure, that's just that's so true. It's so true. They, I see people in public random times, maybe in an airport, and they just smile. And when they're walking at me, right at me and smiling, I know they sat through a speech somewhere in my past. <laughs> and they want to say hi. And that smile is proof that they remember how I made them feel that day. So that's, I mean, that's a short way of saying, uh, there's your explanation for the huge rise of emotional intelligence and training yeah. uh, in the last 20 years, because we have a huge need for more of the positivity and far better managed negative issues at work. Yeah. And that's, that's what I've noticed when, when Goldman brought out his, uh, anniversary edition of his book. Um, that was great timing actually. Um, your third tip today, use your mistakes. This one I want to hear about because <laughs> I think for those of us out there who are conscious of, of the position we have when we're consulting with clients, we're training, we're facilitating, we're very much in the spotlight, uh, but we all screw up. I, that I've done things like hire the wrong people. I've hired associates that go in and screw up my brand. Um, I've been late for things. How do we use our mistakes? Because we're probably going to make lots of them in our career. This, much like authenticity, to be honest with you, uh, is just perennial, always present, always universally true. We all get it. And yet the question remains, why are most of us not great at, at dealing with this issue, making it something useful in our lives? And the answer is, in professional situations, we truly want to be seen in decent light. It's not much more complex than that. So what we do with mistakes is downplay them to the extent possible. If possible, deny them, hide them, put them in the back of our brain, never think about them again. We don't want people to lose confidence in us. I talked to a lot of leaders, and they believe, most of them, 
that if people knew, you know, how imperfect I really am, they knew about the the anxiety, if they knew about the doubt, if they knew about that abject failure two years ago that I did over there, uh, they would just lose confidence in me. And I love telling them that is not true. It is true. If and only if your your mistakes are you know significant and common, then we got a problem, and we have to ask why you're in that role. But otherwise, you're just a human. So when when people own and share from a learning perspective, what did I learn? How did this help me? When they own instead of hide, and when they share, they do two things that are amazing, especially for leaders. Amazing. Number one, they make themselves more human and approachable. That's invaluable in and yep. of itself. Invaluable. Number two, and this is the one no one sees coming. By sharing, owning and sharing two, three, four, five times a year. I'm not talking about five times a week. That might make you strange. <laughs> but if you're not sharing a little of your humanity in the difficult sense with your mistake stories, like I told you about State Farm, you're missing out on an opportunity because the second thing you're doing is actually validating anyone listening because they too can now feel a little better about being imperfect and human just like you. So it's a double whammy. And yet so many people avoid it because they think they're just going to ruin everyone's confidence in them, which is not true. Yeah, that, that's so true, Todd. We perhaps feel under pressure. I'm the person at the top of the room, or I'm the person who should know this thing inside out. And we perhaps are reluctant to share the stuff ups, the screw ups, but actually that's the good stuff. That's what perhaps brings us down a notch and makes people feel we're more empathetic and and therefore perhaps more believable. Uh, and I know when I've done this a few times by just thinking of a story I can tell in the classroom or in some in the right situation, not all situations are pertinent for that. Uh, but when the people are going through a training session and and there's some element of casework, I can relate something where I've screwed up and they feel, well, that's okay. No, well, he's told it. Now we'll we'll tell something like that about ourselves. Um, can I ask you then, in the in the in the uh, context uh, or in the in the spirit of um, authenticity, what was the biggest screw up you made apart from State Farm? Uh, in your role as, as because you're Dr. Dewitt. I mean, people look at you and think that guy's a professor. He's written books. Um, he is in a different part of the atmosphere to the rest of us. How do you? Uh, wonderfully <laughs> nice. We must talk. We must talk on a regular basis, sir. Um, no, there's, it's a great question and it's important. And I'm not bashful as you figured out by now. Uh, I've screwed up a ton. State Farm's mm. probably the most famous example. Uh, I'll give you, um, I'll give you one that's near and dear to my heart. Okay. It, because it's about a book I think a whole lot of people are going to enjoy that comes out next year. It's called right. Dancing with Monsters. And I, I really wanted to write a long-form business piece of fiction with story, characters, people to relate to, and so on. Um, and so I did that. And I knew that was not my forte because years ago I tried writing some novels, and it's not the way that this creativity works. And it was not a good product and never should be read by anyone. <laughs> Anyhow, I got the bug again. And so I started writing this book. And I finished writing it. And then I edited it. And I thought, this is okay. And I had blinders on, which does happen to creatives sometimes. Showed it to my wife, and she looked at me funny, like, I'm not sure this is okay. Showed it to my uh, one of my adult sons, who's sometimes an informal editor, and he looked at me like, mm, I'm not sure this is okay. I was kind of licking my wounds, thinking, I don't even know if I believe in this, uh, you know? And I started reading again, seeing the flaws, which happens when we edit. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do what I know I'm good at, but I'm going to stretch just a little instead of a lot. I'm going to rewrite this because I've been saying for years I want to write a fable, kind of like Who Moved My Cheese and those books. Yeah. I, I really think I could do a better job than the ones I've seen. I swear to you. So I rewrote the whole thing. It's much shorter, very different, changed from human characters to monsters. Uh, we have a vampire or a ghost or what have you. And it was 
jubilant. It was, it was pouring out of me, and I don't know why. And at the time, I was editing and finishing this thing I was so happy about. I got a call from a friend. Hey, I can't do this speech. This company asked me to do this organization. Can you do it? I know you're great. I said, yes. And the organization turned out to be uh, an audio publishers association. And I did the gig. It went great. And the person who was running it, she's like, you know what? Do you know? She was asking me just like you, what's going on? What's your next project? And so on. She said, do you know uh, Matt Holt? I said, no. <laughs> she goes, you should. And she connected me to Matt. He runs one of the best independent publishing houses in the country that is distributed by random uh, ping, penguin, random Penguin Random House. There we go. Yeah. And uh, we got on the phone and fell for each other. And uh, so I got this mistake, mistake to answer your question. This this horrible drivel of a novel-like business book that I had to let go hours and hours, thousands of had to let go and say, you know what? Good for you for trying. That ain't it. And it's not going to help people. And I poured myself into something new that fit like a glove and quickly met a publisher. He can't wait to publish this book. That's serendipity. That's To me, that's almost karma saying, see, you're supposed to listen when those mistakes happen and when it hurts, because there's probably some learning if you'll just pay attention. <laughs> and we all get that. You know, you're so clear or, or you, you believe in this course or this program and you think that's the thing that's going to establish my brand name. It doesn't work. But then somehow fate steps in and almost indirectly you discover what you're really meant for. And, and th this idea of a fable, I can imagine that working for you, Todd. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I'm, I'm hopeful as well. So I, yeah. and I'm really hopeful anyone listening to this will take you and I seriously. Mistakes are normal, unavoidable, successful people usually make more of them than others. They're just better learners in the face of that reality. And if you're not really screwing up, you're not trying hard enough. <laughs> Todd, where can people find out more about you? Where would you like me to direct them? Very kind. Uh, two major places. One is my website. That's drdoit.com, D-R-D-E-W-E-T-T.com, or on LinkedIn. Just look up Todd Do It. I'm the only one you'll find on LinkedIn. So in summary, your tips today were to model it, don't ask for it, establish two-way authenticity, and to use your mistakes. Todd, thank you so much for being my guest on the show. My pleasure. Take care. Todd, thank you again for being my guest today on the show. And thank you so much to you for taking time as a listener to tune in and listen to what Todd was sharing with us. And it's my pleasure every single week to either have one-to-one -one time with you where we cover some topic of relevance to your business as a, a business owner, someone who's a consultant, coach, trainer, facilitator. Um, and for that reason, I'd love you to reach out to me. You can contact me via mark at trainingbusiness.com. That's mark at trainingbusiness.com. I read emails individually and respond personally. If there's anything I can help you with, I would be delighted to do so. This is all about community and therefore your con contribution or contribution to the show is really relevant. And if you can think of people who'd like to listen and get value from the show, please tell them about the show. So until next week, when I know you'll be back for more, please tune in next Thursday for a fresh episode of the Training Business Podcast. This is Mark signing off. Keep coaching, keep selling, keep leading, keep training. Bye for now. Thanks once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. See you next time.